You're listening to the Betway Insider Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Betway Insider Podcast. On this week's show, Christophe Tarreur discusses Mishibachwayi's development under Antonio Conte, Romelu Lukaku's Everton future, and how Roberto Martinez is faring as Belgian manager. There's all that and plenty more. Let's get started. Hello there. I'm Adam Drury, standing in for Tom Bowles, and after a short winter break, this is episode 37 of the Betway Insider podcast. Alongside me in the studio, as always, is resident tipster Alan Alger. Good to see you, Adam. And joining us in the studio this week is a Belgian football expert who lives in England, where he reports on the country's Premier League players. A very warm welcome to Christophe Terreur. Nice to see you, Christophe. Um, coming up, we've got all the usual stuff, the usual betting insight, finish this sentence, wise owl and quick questions. But first, we're going to start with the January transfer window. Um, what's your work like? What, what's your workload during this period typically like, Christoph? And do you anticipate this January being busier than ones gone by? It's not the most busy transfer window because all Belgians are in big clubs, all have still long running contracts. So it's quite a quiet window. I've had busier windows than this before. I have a few deals that I'm waiting for to happen or not to happen. But it's it's quite quite a window for me for the first time since I'm here. So. Yeah, it was, it was surprising to see uh, one Belgian, Christian Benteke, being talked about with a move. Sam Allardyce apparently considering cashing in on him. Um, you've said on Twitter that a move to China is being mooted. What's the situation there? Well, at the moment, nothing is happening. He's not pushing for a move. They don't think Crystal Palace want to sell him to. He's happy in London. And yeah, the Chinese offer was just an agent inquiring uh, if he would be interested. He just had it as a... Just has had a new baby, so he doesn't want to move at this point. They're happy in London, and they want to stay in London. So I think he will stay in England in at Crystal Palace, but never say never in football. If a big offer comes in at the end of the transfer, you never know. But I don't see English clubs... Uh, making big offers for him. So I don't think he will move. It would be a surprise, yeah. Obviously, the Chinese football revolution is an interesting one. And we saw uh, Belgian Axel Witzel, who was branded a mercenary for rejecting Juventus to go to the Far East. Uh, what do you make of his and other players in their prime t- decision to head to China? Well, I see that it mostly are players who once been owned by third parties. So Brazilians, uh Players who played in Portugal, for instance, and Witzel was partly owned by uh, by a few uh, few agents too when he played in in uh, in Portugal at Benfica before he got sold to Zenit. So I think there's still a little bit of pressure pressure of those investors wanting to sell him over there, and he's been trying to move to to uh, to Italy for years. He's been talking with AC Milan. He's talked to Inter. He's talked to Juventus. There was never a move on, never that they were close to an agreement. Even uh, in uh, the end of August, he traveled to uh, to uh, to Turin. He stayed in the hotel at deadline day, but the move didn't come off. Plus, Senate wanted uh, their investment back too. They paid 40 million euros, I think, uh, five years ago. They were still asking a lot of money, and they got 20, from, uh, 20 million euros from the Chinese club, so they cashed in. And Witzel, what he says himself, he has bought uh, shares in a in an aviation company in Belgium, private aviation, and it's a big market in China too. So he's already thinking about that too. So, yeah. And when he chose for Zenit, everyone was already saying, yeah, he chose for the money. 
that's what we thought too. So he always says money is not that important, but yeah, his family will have a really good life now after yeah those wages he get uh, gets a week uh, at, in China. So yeah, but that well, presumably is the biggest persuasive factor in players going over there. Do you think there's a certain hypocrisy among English English uh, football supporters? Uh, for questioning the methods going on over there when lots of European players have come to England for similar reasons. Well, yeah, it's just the same. Lots of yeah, the Belgian players, they rather move to England than, for instance, to Italy because here they pay better. So it's just the same, but on a bigger scale, I think. So it's what, uh, what happened a few years ago. Everyone said, yeah, they moved to England for the money. So, yeah, I think it's a bit hypocrisy because in football, everything turns uh, about money nowadays. Yeah. So some players go to Spain because of the money in, paid in the, in the big clubs too. So, yeah. But still, if you stay in Europe, you still have ambition because the Chinese league, I don't know. I don't really know the level. I haven't seen... Uh, Games in the Chinese league, yeah, but a Belgian uh, first division pl- team played uh, friendly against the Chinese team last uh, last week, and they won 11, 11 nils. So that says something about level. And the manager then said they will have to buy lots of wheat cells to get uh, <laughs> to get back on, on the uh, to to get a decent level level of football. So. Yeah, we'll have to see. Yeah, they've still got a certain standard and history yeah. to create. Um, another Premier League player who's been rumoured to be on the move is Mishi Batshuayi, uh, which seems strange given that Chelsea gazumped West Ham to sign the player in the summer. Uh, do you think Conte's treatment of the player, uh, well, what do you make of Conte's treatment of the player and how do you rate his future at Stamford Bridge? Well, I think Conte wants to keep him, to work with him, to get him tactically uh, adapted to the Premier League. What I, what I know before he came was that he's, yeah, he was tactically not ready. He's not the most, yeah, I, I won't say most intelligent player, but he, he used to play, he always used to play in a two-striker system before before he moved to France. And in France, he only played one season on a decent level. Everyone forgets that in his, at his first season in France, he was just a backup for Gignac, who then moved to Mexico. So when he moved to, to, to Chelsea, all, they paid a lot of money for a player about who they had a few doubts, I think, because Conte was still pushing for Romelu Lukaku. They've had talks with Romelu Lukaku about the move. They've talked to Morata's people. So you already felt, mm, this guy is not Conte's first choice. And then Costa started performing on a really high level. So he could have expected this, I think, that he would be second choice. But in the beginning, he did well. He scored... Uh, he gave an assist in his first game against West Ham when he came on. He scored an important goal against Watford. Then he scored two goals in uh, in the League Cup game against yeah, minor opposition. But that always happens to play in the Premier League. They start off well, young players, and then they they have a little dip in their in their, in their performances. So yeah, he just needs to adapt. I think, although it's a difficult situation, certainly when he expected to play against Bournemouth when. Costa was uh, suspended. He ex- really expected to play, but in the last training session, Conte suddenly changed his mind. Uh, that's what I know from Bachelois people. And that was a really heavy, heavy decision for him. Yeah. And then, yeah, he just played him for 13 seconds, which I found was a humiliation. But a former professional player said maybe it was another test from a manager to see how he copes with that mentally, just give him a few seconds, a few minutes, and see how he reacts on a training session. Um, he has reacted well. I'm hearing he's still training with pleasure. He, 
he is not not sulking in, in, during the training sessions. But I think he wants to play more, and he needs to play more if he wants to to make uh, a step forward. So I don't expect him to move because Chelsea have always said no, and they still haven't got Lorente. Costa is still injury prone and suspension suspension prone too. So I don't expect them to push him uh, to the exit unless they get the striker they want. So. Yeah. Do you think that's a, obviously his lack of playing time has been particularly as a result of Costa's form, which maybe we didn't quite see coming as dramatically as it has. Uh, do you think uh, Conte is a manager who'd rather keep his players under his wing and coach them rather than, say, let Batshuayi out on loan to Swansea where he's been linked? Yeah, because he he yeah he has his methods. He he just wants to yeah his training sessions are quite intense. Lots of tactics involved. He moves them around like uh, yeah like like he's playing Subiteo. He's mm. just moving them around, yeah. and he wants yeah. What I feel I, I see a lot of games of Chelsea. I'm often sitting behind his bench. He's just like a manager who's behind his uh, PlayStation, and <laughs> he wants them to move when he pushes the button he wants them to to shoot when he uh, shouts so it's really funny to see he's just constantly shouting and constantly commanding what, what they have to do so i think some players need some time to get to get uh to get used to his system too and that's why he wants to keep bachawaye i think that's what he he says too because he wants yeah they know his potential and they want him ready for next season, I think. So, you think that method of coaching can be quite hard on a on a striker who perhaps would rather be set free than than told what to do every second of a, of a yeah, match? Yeah, well, that's what happened. I think in the beginning of the season with, with Costa when he reacted to the bench. I, I know if you've seen yeah, that yeah. he reacted. Yeah. I think that was because Conte was always shouting. Now in the corner, Diego. Some players just don't like being constantly moved around or of being told what to do. Uh, on a certain point in the game, I saw Eden Hazard also doing his sign to the manager. Yes, I've heard you. I'm doing this. So, yeah, yeah. I guess it's, that's that's credit to Conte that he's got the players playing for him while while drilling them. So, while annoyingly, so yeah, that's kind of quite <laughs> perhaps quite different to what uh, what's going on at Arsenal sometimes. That I kind of thought so. Um, yeah, I think I, I think sometimes people criticise Arsene Wenger when Arsenal are behind in a match and he's not really up on the touchline barking instructions at the players. I'm not sure that's his way. I mean, his only time to, to come into the technical area seems to be to throw his arms in the air and moan at the, the fourth official or the referee. And a lot of lot of Arsenal fans that are anti-Arsene Wenger have used Conte's touchline mannerisms to actually criticise Wenger. And um, I'm not quite sure that's fair. Me backing up Arsene Wenger, you won't, you won't <laughs> see that often. No, I guess it's two contrasting styles. Um, another striker who's been linked with moves to Arsenal and more often Chelsea, back to Chelsea, is Romelu Lukaku. Um, he's being forever linked with big moves uh, and there's talk of a contract extension at Everton coming up perhaps just to uh, increase his value. Um, what's your take on that one? Well, if I was him, I wouldn't sign a new deal, but I think, yeah, how many clubs can afford to pay yeah, what Everton is asking around yeah, 70 million, 60, 70 million pounds? I was making the exercise myself, which team would pay that? You have some English teams, but they all have strikers. I don't think he's better than Alexis Sanchez at the moment if he's played as, as a striker. Even Giroud, who has his qualities, is on the bench. So they won't take him. Costa is number one in Chelsea. They won't take him. Raiola will never put him beside or, or behind Ibrahimovic. So Man United, no. He's not a Guardiola type of striker. So in the English league, 
in the Premier League, I think no one really wants him at the moment. And then you take the, yeah, you can say maybe PSG, but Cavani is playing at a high level too. At the moment, scoring lots of goals. And then you have Atletico, but I don't think they have the money unless they sell Griezmann. Barcelona, Real Madrid and the Juventus maybe, but Juventus have paid lots of money for Higuain. So that's a no for you too. Can't really see him getting games at... No, I Any don't see those, him. No, as, as so. Has he got a very active agent that likes to keep him as one of the headlines during transfer windows? Because we obviously offer markets on which players will move during transfer windows and which clubs they will end up at. And a lot of the time, we'll price Everton as an outsider. The club is actually incumbent at. The, the club is actually at. To stay at that club is usually an outsider because the, these news stories seem to gather enough pace for people to back him to just go anywhere else and lots of clubs have been favourite to sign him over Everton keeping him in the last few windows yeah it's yeah his his agent likes to talk that's what we know we see that with Ibrahimovic too he gives a lot of interviews but I don't think he's it's his uh it's Romelu is a quite a quiet guy, but it's always the people around who like to talk. His dad, for instance, they don't, he doesn't have a real close relationship with his dad, but he pointed out, I wanted to move. He said last last time, I want him to move to Bayern or to Manchester United. And then the market and the rumors start again, he will move over there. While there has never been contact with Man United or, or with Bayern Munich. So, but yeah. He wants the move. He definitely thinks he's up for the move too. He wants to play Champions League. He wants to play, yeah, maybe Europa League. But yeah, if there are no clubs who can afford to pay, yeah, then you're going to stay there. And that's why he, I think, he's now talking about the new contract, being sure that you have that you're paid quite well for a team like Everton, being the highest paid player. And then hope, I think they will, I don't think they will put in a release clause, but they will make a sort of gentleman's agreement. If there's a 60 million bid from Chelsea, for instance, he's still dreaming of Chelsea, then you might go, uh, then we allow you to go over there. So, but yeah, this agent likes to talk about that too, because when they were, he said at a certain point, yes, there we have 99% uh, agreed with, uh, with, uh, with Everton. But that doesn't mean that he won't move anywhere. So <laughs> they keep they keep the the stories going too. So presumably Everton must be absolutely delighted that they got him at the age that he was, and for the money they did, because they know that to sell him on is going to cost an awful lot. And they've kind of uh, taken him from a young striker who was really promising and doing well to to the level that he is now. Yeah, it's. I think they paid twenty eight yeah. million pounds uh, in the town, which was at that point already. And we say it's a lot. It was a lot of money. It was a big gamble for striker who was. Yeah, he wasn't unproven, but it was still a lot of money. It's only it's only one third of a training ground sponsorship now. Yeah, yeah, he <laughs> did so. Uh, but. It, it was a good investment for Everton. They have him, but it's one of, of the only one they can sell on at the moment. I think Ross Barkley is not performing well and the rest I won't buy. If I was a top team, I wouldn't buy an Everton player. So. Well, uh, Ross Barkley, the rumours that, uh, that Tottenham are interested in Ross Barkley. I can't see that unless no. they really think they can ultimately change his whole attitude and almost retrain him as a player be because a 30 million pounds on potential well, he's got he's but, got but into I, I so think, many bad habits him, but, during games yeah. but i think a manager like pochettino is really on his players will help a player like that too to yeah he he has to be i think uh, physically a lot sharper too he looks maybe it's just his body shape he looks a bit heavy to me but 
at, at, at Spurs, they really train hard. They, I think he, he needs a manager like that who lets him run a lot, changes his game a bit. So, but I can see I don't that see... going the other way. I can see him. I can see him actually not responding to that and it being. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know Adam him. Says a yeah, I don't know him at all. So, yeah. I don't see that one happening because Spurs, when all the players are fit, they have such a strong midfield and they don't really play with a real number 10, what Barkley is. So they just, the players are constantly moving around. So, and he's not a really moving player. Doesn't so, seem adaptable at the moment, yeah, does he? Yeah. So uh, I thought that was an interesting rumour. You think when Lukaku signed for Everton, he was buying into that, uh, you know, useful, vibrant attack with Barkley, with uh, Delefeu and Morales, obviously, as well? Yeah, um, yeah. He, and that hasn't really worked out. Yeah, it hasn't. Yeah, he'd expected more when they qualified for the Europa League. He was happy, and now next year we will get into Champions League. And then the new owner comes and he says, "Yeah, we're going for Champions League too." But if you look at the squad, they sold one of the most promising players in John Stones. So they, I don't see Everton making big steps forward. They're just staying in the same position where they were. And yeah, the the big teams are just yeah they are. Uh, they are they are investing a lot, and like you see now this season, I think the gap between the top six and the rest has never been that big. That like uh, this season uh, for for the last few seasons since I'm here, I've never seen such a big gap between the sub- top six and the rest of them. So, well, you bring me nicely on there, Christoph, <laughs> yeah. to, to to markets for. Well, the FA Cup, the first, the first one's the FA Cup. You talk of a big six, obviously you mean Chelsea, Man City, Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal and Tottenham. The top six in the Premier League, they are the top six in the Premier League betting, as you'd expect, because that's the way they are in the table. But in the FA Cup, they've all managed to avoid each other uh, for the next round. And we have just three and a half points separating them at the top of the market. Chelsea, nine to two favourites. City, five to one. United, 11 to two. Liverpool, 13 to two. Arsenal and Tottenham, both seven to one. And all six of them, and um, I am assuming that Liverpool will eventually win uh, against Plymouth in their replay, but all six of them look set to be in the last 16. And there's a massive gap then to Leicester at 25-1. to And they're only really there just on the basis that they're Leicester and they won the Premier League last year. We can't really find a seventh team to be in that market with a decent draw. And the gap between Manchester United in sixth place in the Premier League betting and Everton seventh place... Is fourteen to one to seven hundred and fifty to one. So even though you had that that slight uh, anomaly with Leicester winning it last year, Everton were a team that maybe four or five years ago were challenging. I mean, they came fourth one season, didn't they? Yeah, um, Liverpool won the Champions yeah, League. Yeah, exactly. Four. They came they came fourth one season, but now they're actually seeing themselves as the seventh team, and that being a ceiling at the moment. Uh, until they get some some investment, I know that, that the investment is there, but they're almost playing catch up at the moment. Um, let's just touch on uh, Lukaku's ex Everton manager Roberto Martinez. Um, a slightly unusual and surprise choice to take over as Belgian manager. What's your take on how he's but getting on? It, w- it was a big surprise for us when he came. He had already talked to Anderlecht. Uh, they were looking for a new manager, but he was far too expensive. They said, and then he signed for 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 the Belgian FA just because he saw a good opportunity. I think he's not. He didn't take a, a big contract. I, I think he only earns yeah about eight hundred thousand pounds a year, which is not a lot for a manager who's been used to Premier League wages. But he got huge bonuses when he gets into the semi-finals at the World Cup. 
something I don't see happening. He gets one million extra and things like that. So I think he could earn about four million euros in in two years, but then he has to reach the the final, the World Cup final too. He's doing well at the moment. Players still like him, but yeah, we have quite an easy group with Greece, Bosnia, Estonia, Gibraltar. Yeah, it's just a walk in the park for such a strong team. So we will only see how good he is at the World Cup in Russia, I think. Uh, is Thierry Omri proving useful as his right-hand man? Well, the players really like him. So, uh, certainly the strikers who are always asking him advice. I know that Romelu Lukaku and him are watching a lot of videos together to work on his movement, to work on his uh, on his passing too. So, yeah, lots of the strikers at Thierry Henry as an idol when they were younger. So it's it's quite uh, normal that they, when he first came in, they said, wow. And I think they needed someone like that too because the, yeah, the, the, the former staff were all players who'd once played in, 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 uh, in Belgium. Mark Wilmers had won a Europa Cup with Schalke, but they were not guys... They really looked up to uh, if you're working under Mourinho Guardiola and then suddenly have to work under a manager like Mike Wilmot. I would also say, yeah, this is <laughs> we're dropping in a level. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, and then Harry is really a good factor for the guys like, yeah, we have a former World Cup, former European Championship winner. And um, yeah, he's good among the guys, although. Yeah, he's quite laid back. He's not the guy who's involved in the tactics and, and stuff like that. He's quite laid back. He takes care the more the personal stuff with the players. He talks to them, gives them advice. But they all like him. Uh, they all really like him. Every every time you talk about the national team with the strikers, they mention Henri themselves. So that means that, yeah, he does something with them. Yeah. Obviously, uh, a huge number of that Belgian squad are playing in the Premier League, but there are others. Um do you envisage any of the other big-name players, for example, Mertens of Napoli, uh, coming over to England anytime soon? Well, Mertens lives in Napoli in a fantastic house. He can see uh, the, the the Isle of uh, of Capri. I wouldn't move if I was there. <laughs> once you once you live in Napoli, yeah, you die over there. You have to see Napoli yeah. and then you die. So, yeah, he's so happy in Italy. And he's having an incredible season. Isn't he? He's having an incredible yeah. season. They're still talking about a contract extension. He still hasn't extended. But if you're living... Yeah, I don't think uh, a Premier League top league team will sign him. Uh, I don't see it. He will be in the same situation as in Napoli, whereas in the team, sometimes out of the team. If I'm 29 and I'm living in, in one of the most beautiful parts of Italy, I will move it. And, I th- and he thinks the same way, I think. I will stay in Italy until um, I'm 34 and then we will see what happens. So it's a shame because he has the qualities to make it in the Premier League. He has an acceleration. He's, uh, he's fast. He has a dribble. He likes to score goals. But I think he's missed the boat to, to, yeah. to England already. I think so. he's a player we're appreciating. I mean, he doesn't anyway. fancy a switch to <laughs> Stoke or something. <laughs> yeah, or maybe up to Teesside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, from Napoli to Stoke. Mm. Perhaps not. Um, Al, we ended 2016 with you explaining why Arsenal weren't going to win the league and how Chelsea are odds on to do so. Obviously, a lot has happened since Tottenham beat Chelsea uh, just at the start of January. So how has that and the festive period affected Premier League prices? The ever-fluctuating Premier League market, um, we've mentioned it before on the podcast, but if you're ahead of these moves and you can look at teams' fixtures, you can sometimes get some, some value prices. 
And, you know, the the big one to mention is the fact that Chelsea went out to 25-1 to on that three-game winless streak that ended in a 3-0 defeat at the Emirates. Out to 25-1 to that Monday. They're still odds on for the title. I mentioned before Christmas they were odds on. They were on a fantastic run up until the point that they lost against Tottenham. But we still believe that that was an excusable defeat in amongst some tough fixtures. So uh, the fact that they lost against Tottenham, we can excuse them that. And they play Leicester at the weekend. And that's another difficult fixture, or at least it was on paper at the start of the season. I still believe that Leicester will uh, give them a game at the weekend. And I think there are still a, a tiny amount of question marks over Chelsea. But if they answer them in the small games, which is what some of the other clubs are not doing, then they'll go on to win the league and our prices will be right. They're four to five at the moment, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, Liverpool into nine to two. Manchester City out to seven to one. Obviously, uh, Liverpool scoring a massive victory over Man City. It's only three points. It's it's a game between two title contenders, but it really you know places a marker down there. And Tottenham. They are shorter than Arsenal. They were shorter than Arsenal a lot of the time last season. In fact, at one stage, they were 25-1 to 1 on to finish above Arsenal last season. And obviously, on the final day of the season, um, that, that swapped around. But again, we priced them as favourites to finish above Arsenal. Only slight favourites at 8-11. to 11. Arsenal are evens. But uh, it does actually show the progress that Tottenham have made. And uh, without being big-headed, I think I pointed out a, a few podcasts ago that Tottenham did have a number of their tough games out of the way. And if anything, the the second half of the season was going to be much easier for them in relation to the first and that they should be watched as a team that could creep up the table. Um, And conversely, and as you mentioned at the start, I did mention that Arsenal have probably had a a very easy start to season or in relation an easier start and easier fixtures. And once they started playing the difficult teams, and any time that they were above four to six in the Premier League, they started to struggle. And we're seeing that again with Arsenal and they're out to 14 to one. The traders aren't convinced because even in the games that they're winning at the moment, they're not actually uh, performing that well in terms of uh, the shots on target and things like that. And as a team, uh, the first day of 2017, they conceded five shots on target against the Crystal Palace team that in 2016 were the worst team in English football. And to do that, you really have to question Arsenal's defence. Obviously, four days later, they then conceded three at Bournemouth. So we're not convinced about Arsenal and um, I think rightly so. Okay, let's just quickly touch on the League Cup as well or EFL Cup as we should call it. Uh, Liverpool head back to Anfield, 1-0 down to Southampton. Man United obviously beat Hull 2-0. How has that Liverpool defeat particularly affected the prices? Yeah, I mean, obviously lots of people saying that Southampton should probably taking more of their chances yeah. and obviously Liverpool's price would have drifted even more if they'd have been two or three behind. It's only a one-goal deficit and obviously it all starts again in, in uh, a few days' time, so they've got enough time to reflect on that. But they're out to nine to four second favourites now. They were around six to four before the game. Uh, obviously Manchester United... They're in a fantastic position, uh, 2-0 up against Hull. So they are odds-on favourites. They're heavily, heavily odds-on to obviously be in the final. But it just depends who they meet on the day. If they meet Southampton, they'll go even shorter. And if they meet Liverpool, they might drift to being around 5-6. to six. But if you fancy Southampton to hold on, but you fancy Manchester United to take the trophy, now is the time to back Manchester United because they will shorten if they meet Southampton in the final. OK, good stuff. On with the next part of the show. Wise Al. 
Okay, right, Christoph, this is where you take on our resident tipster, Alan, in our weekly treble competition. Before we start, though, Alan has very kindly offered to give you, Christoph, and our listeners some additional insight, not just on predictions, but on the market itself. What's on your mind, Al? Uh, it's just a very interesting Premier League card this weekend. Uh, obviously, 10 fixtures, as per usual. And uh, there have actually been 200 games in the Premier League this season. So nice round numbers to work with. 23% of them have been draws. If you take out the home games of the big six, as in the games where you'd expect those teams to win, it actually goes up to 25%. And that has been the average. One in, one in every four games would be a draw in the Premier League if you look at the average over, over the last 10 years. But some very interesting prices this weekend because as bookmakers, we're asking you to take much shorter prices than that one in four chance. We're actually asking you in four of the games to take almost a one in three chance. And the shortest one of all is a one in three chance and it's Watford against Middlesbrough. It's one of the shortest prices you will ever see for a draw in the Premier League. It's two to one that this one ends up in a draw. Both teams expected low goal scoring, um, especially Middlesbrough's away games. They are extremely low low scoring. Um, and I think that that's why that's been priced up. But you see a couple of other games. Burnley against Southampton, Sunderland against Stoke and West Ham against Crystal Palace. They're all under 5-2 to two to produce draws this weekend. So we're saying that this could be the weekend where there are lots of draws in the Premier League. And some of the other, other fixtures actually look right for draws as well. OK, well, let's see what you both go with. Um, the rules are simple, Christoph. You each pick three win-draw-win bets for the weekend's matches and the treble which returns the most profit, if any at all, is the winner. Uh, Alan was successful against Gabriel Marcotti last time out, meaning he has taken a 2-1 series lead over the guests. And the £83.25 that that trouble returned means our total donated to the English Federation of Disability Sport now stands at just under £900, which is great. So hopefully we can add to that this week. Christoph, please can I have your first pick and a short explanation as to why? Uh, I'd gone for Spurs win over over West Brom because it's quite... uh, I think I play always safe, so go for the safe bet. Spurs win, easy win against Pulis team, 1-0. Harry Kane, minute 66, I think. (laughs) Too detailed. (laughs) That is very much an explanation. Al, what's your first one? Uh, Swansea uh, at home to Arsenal... um, I think that this one could be a draw. Yeah, as I said, uh, I think there are, there are a lot of games that can end up draws this weekend in the Premier League. But I'm going to go for some of the bigger price ones. And uh, Swansea against Arsenal. Arsenal not convincing me at the moment. And uh, I think that, that Swansea are good good enough for a goal. And I just don't think Arsenal have had the firepower of late to, to, to manage to to score more than Swansea. So I, I think this one could be one or 2-2. Two, two. Okay, thank you. Christoph. your second choice? Well... I go for game between two Italian managers, which would certainly end up in a draw, uh, Leicester-Chelsea. So it will be a very boring game. Two managers uh, doing lots of tactical things to outmatch each other, and it will end up in a 0-0. Bit of a stalemate. Uh, yeah, stalemate. Uh, so. Okay, thank you, Al. I think things uh, at Tottenham are all going a bit too well at the moment. And I've seen West Brom go to teams and, and really try and stifle them. And I think this early kickoff could catch Tottenham out. And a lot of the time when people get behind Tottenham and say, oh, they're, they're fantastic, they start to believe their own hype. And they, they always hit a blip like this. If you speak to any Tottenham fans, you know. They always know that this blip's around the corner. And a point at home to West Brom in the context of things might not be a, an absolute disaster, but... In the context of keeping that momentum up in this title charge, I think it could be a blip that really affects them. So I'm going to go for West Brom to eke out a draw at White Hart Lane this weekend. I think West Brom a bit of a bogey team for Spurs as well. Um, Christoph, your third pick? 
Well, I go for Man City winning at Everton. I think Everton have been really awful in the in a few games. I've seen them a few times. I don't see it. And Man City are in my eyes back on track. Like you see some things, although they lost against uh, against uh, against Liverpool, you see things. Uh, they're quite good. They all players all except Fernandino back from suspension. Uh, they start to. To go again, so I Fantastic. see them winning, winning at Everton too. So okay, thank you, Al. Uh, United Liverpool. You get all the hyped up games on Sky, and uh, they often they don't really live up to the hype. And I think this might be another one. So you can see this being nil nil or one one. United Liverpool draw at uh, twelve to five. Okay, thank you. And if you're able to just uh, remind us of both travels and the profits. We'll do. So Christoph is going for Tottenham to beat West Brom, Leicester and Chelsea to be an Italian draw, City to beat Everton at prices of 30 to 100, 3 to 1, 5 to 6. Adding them up in my head, 8.53 to 1. No, I had, <laughs> it, on my, had it on a piece of paper. <laughs> uh, the profit for the £25 free stake that we're giving you. We do not charge the charity the stake. That would be ridiculous. £213.33 added if Christoph wins. And my draw treble is Swansea Arsenal 15-4, to Tottenham West Brom 17-4 to and Manchester United Liverpool to not live up to the hype at 12-5. to I'm trying to knock the ball out of the park and down the road a bit here. 83.78 to 1. Returning £2,095.32 <laughs> to the charity for a £25 stake. So aiming to over-treble the current uh, kitty, Absolutely. I think. Absolutely. That be fantastic. Thank you both and good luck. Now on with the final part of the show. The Betway Insider. Quick questions. Okay, Christoph, this is where we find out a bit more about your career through a series of questions that aren't always necessarily quick. Uh, I saw on Twitter that you've worked in England for four years. How did that move come about? Well, I used to work uh, for half a year as an editor at the paper, which I wasn't enjoying. I'd been a journalist for, yeah, at least, I think, nine years. You have a lot of freedom. Then you end up at the desk. And it wasn't really my job. So at that point, we'd already talked about me and the sports uh, the editor, the sports editor in chief, about sending someone to England because it was 2012 when more and more players moved to England. Hazard came, Benteke came, uh, Vertonghen, Dembele moved to Spurs, and then we started thinking about that plan. But no one really wanted to do that which is weird, but you have to give up everything, social life, family life, things like that. Um, yeah, me and, the, and, uh, and my boss at a certain point, I said, I don't want to do this job anymore as an editor. I just want to be a journalist again, writing again. And then suddenly at a certain point, he asked me, you know, we talked about someone moving to England. Do you want to do it? And I, I said, at first, I said, no, I want to think about it for one week. But after one while, I said, I will just do it. I like the Premier League. I used to be a fan of when I was a kid, 14, 15 years old, watching uh, the Premier League. And I, then I just did it. Just move. I think it took me a week to move over here. And I'm still enjoying it, not thinking about moving back to Belgium again. <laughs> because if I now watch games of the Belgian League, yeah, it could the tempo is so bad yeah it's just not the same anymore I feel bored when I watch Belgian football so there's no way back I have to stay in England so just stuck over here now absolutely 
Um, we've had Raphael Honigstein and Julian Laurent on this podcast and both discuss the relationships they've been able to develop with players playing in England from their country. Have you been able to do the same thing and how important has that been? Well, the the good thing was that I knew already a lot of the players that are over here before. I used to, when I was uh, covering uh, the Belgian League, I used to cover Racing Genk, the team where Ben Teke made his uh, debut when he was 16, where Thibaut Courtois made his debut when he was 16, where Kevin De Bruyne made his debut when I was just 17 or about about to get 17 years old. So I already knew those guys when I was 23. 223 I was following the under 19 team uh, of Belgium where you had Vermalen at that point those kind of guys so I grew up with this generation of players there were a few I didn't know before I moved here but for instance Captain No Hazard as a nice chap one of the nicest players I know Lukaku and most of them know me I know them a good relationship they also I'm the only Belgian uh, living uh, in England they also see me as their first, yeah, between brackets PR channel back yeah. to, to 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 Belgium when there's something wrong, written that's not right, yeah. then I can always correct that to the Belgian press. So I have a trust relationship with a few players who I touch a lot. But yeah, I put, it's not about protecting, but sometimes it's good when a false story is going out of that. I immediately know about this is, this is not right. So it's quite good. You always see, it's always quite funny when you're in a mixed zone with English journalists and that the Belgian players, even if they don't want to talk, they come to say hello, shake your hand. Yeah, we in Belgium, we grew up in an open culture. Now it's changing a bit. But when I was uh, just a journalist in Belgium, we could see every single training session I've seen brilliant training sessions of Kevin De Bruyne when he was 18 when I was saying whoa this guy can do a lot this is the best one I've ever seen in a training session same with Thibaut Courtois he had something special in training session and that's something you now see seeing confirmed in a league there you see whoa I saw these guys when they were 18 and they had something special and now they're performing at the highest level so yeah and it's quite uh, this is a bit easier for us to work than the English journalists too because they never up those relationships with players because everything is so closed over here. Had to adapt to that too, not having interviews anymore, not seeing training sessions anymore, so it gives you other angles. You have to search for other angles to make stories. I find it a pity that they are not as open as in Belgium because sometimes I can still check stories with with players, with, with people around them, and that's more difficult for the English journalists. So, yeah, but it's just a, the, the English culture, I think. In Germany, it's, it was kind of the same as in Belgium. I did interviews in, in Germany too, and it was really open. In France, it's, it's a little less, but yeah, here's the close, it's a really close culture of yeah, not no. giving them everything, doing everything on their channels. I don't say it's bad, but it, I think sometimes a more, if they had a better relationship with the players, there wouldn't be. They would, they would have had better stories too sometimes because sometimes a player tells you something of the record. It's just a slight thing about the manager, what he does for instance, but you can get a story out of that. So you know a lot. And then the more the more you know, the better your stories are, I yeah. think. So I, I like to write background stories. Like I made a background story a few weeks ago on Comte, on what players had told me, yeah, 
a few times just things off the record sometimes he's done this he's done that and then you get a real insight in the manager also because I followed Italy for for the Euros and I've talked to people over there, seen training sessions, but I don't see the confirmation of those training sessions over here yet because everything is close to Chelsea. So, yeah, that that culture can be a pity. Yeah. Um, obviously, all the players you've mentioned naturally do have uh, difficult spells in England. Uh, for example, Eden Hazard at Chelsea last season. Uh, Fellaini has been booed by Manchester United supporters. Uh, when that happens, do you feel compelled to use your position to defend him or do you report objectively on the situation? Well, I, so, I, I do it quite objectively. If they're booed, they're booed. Something was happening. I know that websites are, tend to make stories based on Twitter comments. That I, I don't like that at all because uh, Twitter is just... <laughs> Yeah, it's just yeah. a pub talk. <laughs> so the, you wouldn't do that. Yeah, you don't. I, I, I haven't seen any newspaper going to a pub and just writing down what's said about players in a pub. So that's a bit the same, like just doing. But when they're booed by public, we just report on it. Sometimes I, but with Fellaini, I, I remember that I wrote that he's, yeah, that is a bit the symbol of uh, of what's happened the last three years. He can't help it. He didn't, yeah, he, his dad was crying when he signed the contract. They were so happy that they could go to Manchester United. It's not his fault that he was bought by Manchester United. <laughs> so it's a pity. He's a symbol of the of of the misery of the last three years. I can understand that some fans don't see him as a Manchester United player, but he always gives his best. He's he's always passionate in training session on the pitch. Yes, he makes mistakes. But I won't boo him for that. So because he's like, just not a Manchester United player, yeah. just a fi- bit of a victimized. That's what the, what the teammates think too. So, yeah. and Mourinho has done it pretty well with protecting him too, while saying this victory is for Fellaini after they. I don't know who they who they beat. He said this victory is for Fellaini now. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. And what happened with Hazard last year? I knew what was happening. Uh, there was lots of pressure on him. No one wanted to believe it, but he was injured since Dece- from December till uh, till uh, till April, and he was just he got that recurring injury coming over again, and everyone was on his back. Also because of what happened with Mourinho, but I think none of the Chelsea players were fit when they started the season. They just had a short preseason, then they, a short preseason in the stage. They came back jet lagged to play the Community Shield, and. That short preseason, yeah, it was uh, it was caused by uh, by a tour in Australia and Thailand after the the championship season. Yeah. That has yeah, that Mourinho took the decision. We've been now, yeah, one and a half week extra. I move on the holiday to get them back fresh, and he underestimated that. And then, yeah, then you had the Eva Carnero story, all the politics playing behind the walls. Players don't didn't like it anymore. Mourinho was not in a, in a good mood. It's not, yeah, it's never been a happy bunny. But when he's, yeah, he's never had a period like that with bad results too. So he became angry and annoying <laughs> to players too. He he called them in and asked them, "Hey, do you want to kill me?" And then players were looking, "No, I really just <laughs> I just struggling with my form. Yeah. It's not all about you." Mm. So he thought it was all about him that they were putting knives in his back. I think some players gave up on Mourinho at a certain point, but knowing Hazard, he's still grateful for his best season under Mourinho. Too. Yeah. He always mentioned it. 
I know that they still sometimes send the text to each other. I know Mourinho really liked Eden as a human because he's a family guy. He's really old-fashioned footballer. He's not the, the guy who wants all all the attention. And Mourinho really liked that. He always called him an old-fashioned player like, yeah, a good guy who never complains. I would, yeah, it's the guy. I, I, I think he once said, I want him as a as a son. He's always happy. He's never complaining. He's just a good guy. But I understand, I understand Mourinho's frustration with Adam too because he's happy with 60% sometimes. Um, yeah, he just enjoys life. Winning is not that important for him. It is important. But if he hasn't entertained the people, he's happy too. So results-wise... Yeah, I could sometimes understand the frustration of Mourinho too, that he was just a happy boy all the time. Even when you're struggling, you expect him to be angry, to re- to react, certainly if you're Mourinho. And he was just the guy who entertained anyone in the dressing room and on the pitch too. So, Yeah, that's interesting stuff. I assume Hazard is a top contender to be included in your Insider 5, which is where our guest selects a five-a-side team based on the area of their expertise. So, Christoph, we want your team to be made up of the Premier League's greatest Belgian imports, past or present. Who have you gone for? Well, I go for Courtois in goal because yeah, we only have two goalkeepers over here and he's he's still the potential to be one of the best, not the best goalkeeper in the world. Then in defence, I go for Toby Alderweireld just based on form right now because yeah, we have had good defenders in the past, but company... Yeah, he's been struggling with injuries for a few years. We had Philippe Albert back in the 90s. He was quite good too. He scored a lot of goals. But I think all the world is, yeah, other type of defender. He's good in positioning, so I need someone in the back. His positioning is quite well. He reads the game really good, so I choose him. In midfield, I will go for Moussa Dembele. Just because he's strong, because I like to see him. I always expect him expecting him to do better, to score more goals, but he's just the obvious street footballer and you need a street footballer in a five-a-side <laughs> team. So, And yeah, he's so strong in the duels. I think he's the, one of the strongest guys in the Premier League if you even look at his stats too with winning duels and dribbling. He never loses a ball when he has it. So sometimes takes not a lot of risks, but I've two other players who will take all the risks for, for me. That's De Bruyne and Hazard, which are, I think the two best players Belgium has produced in the last 20 years. So, Yeah, that's a fabulous team. Um, right, that's just about everything for this episode. Thank you, Al, for your contribution. Pleasure. Uh, that, that Toby Alderweireld stat that uh, came out this week, that his last seven seasons he's either been in the top defence in the league that he's been in or the second only by one goal. So yeah. Yeah, quite it, incredible. Quite yeah, in, I, in, in Ajax it was quite easy to be in the <coughs> top defence. In Atletico, he didn't play a lot. Yeah, he played 25 games, I think. But he always says he learned to defend in, at Atletico. At Ajax, he learned how to play football. But Simeone taught him to defend and to think and to, to enjoy a clean sheet, he always says. So he has a bit of the boat. And I think we we never expect him to make this progress, too. We never yeah. expect it. He's a bit of the, the underdog, the Belgian underdog, who's made the most progress in the last few years. So Yeah, he's got a fabulous record since he came over here. Uh, and our final thanks go to the excellent Christophe Terreur. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks again to Christophe Terreur for coming in. Tom Bowles will be back in the studio with Alan Alga next week. 
If you enjoyed this Betway Insider podcast, then hit the subscribe button and the next episode will come straight to you. You can also find us via Facebook, Twitter and on the Betway Insider blog.